This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is A.H. Almas. A.H. Almas is the pen name of Hamid Ali, who has written more than 14 books, including his most recent, The Unfolding Now. In 1976, he founded the Ridwan School. Hamid's interest in the truth of human nature and the true nature of reality resulted in the creation and unfoldment of the Diamond Approach. The Diamond Approach is a path of wisdom, an approach to the investigation of reality and work on oneself that leads to human maturity and liberation. With Sounds True, Hamid has created several audio and video programs, including a six-session audio series on the Diamond Approach. He has also collaborated with spiritual teacher Adyashanti to create the program Realization Unfolds. And upcoming on October 27th, Hamid will be featured in an in-person live event in San Rafael, California, an event that Sounds True is producing. Hamid will be joined on stage by Episcopalian priest Cynthia Bourgeau, and they'll be talking about conscious love, the power of revelation. This will be an opportunity for participants to look deeply into their hearts and step further into conscious loving as the illuminating force of spiritual realization and transformation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Hamid and I spoke about several of the distinguishing and unique characteristics of the Diamond Approach, including how in the Diamond Approach there is no distinction between looking at things psychologically versus spiritually. We also talked about the role of inquiry and the importance of personhood, what Hamid calls the pearl beyond price. Finally, we talked about how it is the love of the truth that drives the process of realization and how realization itself has no end. Here's my conversation recorded while he was in vacation in Hawaii with someone who I consider, and this is a big phrase to use, and it's not a phrase that I use often, a true spiritual genius, A.H. Almas. Hamid, I had the great honor a couple of years ago to spend three days in a recording studio with you, where we recorded the six-session audio program on the Diamond Approach, And I remember many things from those three days, 
But there's one comment you made that has really stuck with me, and I've quoted it many times to other people, and I wanted to start our conversation right there with that comment. And that is, I was talking to you about the role of the teacher and the role of the teacher in spiritual work. And you said, you know, Tammy, one in 10,000 people can find their way without a teacher. And I thought that was a very strong and definitive statement, and I want to hear more about it. What gives you this clarity that only one in 10,000 people could find their way without a teacher? It's just my observation and my experience, plus knowing the history of spiritual teaching a lot. I'm a student of many traditions and read and studied many and know the history, how things happen. So that combined with my observation and experience with people, most people really don't know their way. They don't know how to find their way. In general, you know, when the person begins to approach spiritual work or they begin to feel the stir, they don't know how lost they are. They don't know how subtle reality can be. They don't know how asleep they are, even if they know they are asleep. And it takes a lot to wake up by oneself. I mean, it does happen. You have instances about it. You hear instances about it. But it's rare. And most traditions take it, basically take the position, you get a teacher. There's no other way. I don't say that. I don't say there's no other way. I say, yeah, some people do wake up by themselves. But don't count on it. Well, then, of course, it comes immediately. The question becomes, how do I know if a teacher is qualified and if a teacher can, quote-unquote, take me all the way? And I'm curious, first of all, what you think would make a teacher qualified and what you think about this sense of going all the way in terms of spiritual work and how one would know if a teacher would have that ability. Well, first of all, this has several assumptions. First is that you should have only one teacher. Second is that there is such a thing as all the way. Uh, First of all, most people find the teacher. They could work with them part of the way because it's important people find the teachers that they can understand, who can work with them. A fully fully advanced teacher is not going to be visible by the beginning student, and that teacher is not going to be willing to take on such students. So to think of finding the best teacher, the teacher could take you all the way from the beginning, is really not a good question. It's more like, who is the appropriate teacher for me at this time? First. And so, and the way it works is that people hear about teachers, read about teachers, get in, encounter them, go listen to them. And the best way is to really see it's not just a teacher. Each teaching follows a teaching. There are traditions, there are teaching. Each one has its own language, its own wavelength. And a student fits in some of them and not others. So first, the student needs to know which wavelength fits them, which teaching really speaks to their kind of mind, their kind of consciousness. 
and then try to hook up with a teacher from that particular teaching or uh, tradition, a teacher that they feel they can trust, they feel they can learn from, and um, a teacher they feel is inspiring, that they are learning something different about themselves. And at some point, they might find out that they could go far away with that teacher, and they might, at some point they might find out, no, at a certain level of development, they feel that they need to go to other teacher. So that's exactly what happened to the Buddha, if you remember the story of the Buddha. He went from one guru to another, learned one thing after the other. Finally, he went off by himself. But he learned from many. And... Uh, there are traditions that have many teaching teachers, like if you have the Kabbalah or the Sufis or the Tibetan Buddhists or the Zen. That's a big tradition that has many teachers. One can choose one teacher as what they call a root guru or root teacher, stay with them, or they could have, go from one teacher to another from the same tradition. And if they are from the same tradition, they should know each other, and they could tell the students, now I think if you go to this teacher, this will work better, work for you better at this stage. So the situation is more complex than the simple one of how do you find a teacher. The situation is really, beginning students at the beginning, they really have no idea what the, it's like you have to learn about the whole world, about the spiritual world, the spiritual teaching, and spiritual traditions, and teachers, and lineages. and It's, it's not a simple little thing. So the best thing is first is to find what speaks to oneself and to find somebody you can trust, you can feel you can learn from, has integrity and has true understanding, true realization, and work with them. It might be your teacher for good, it might be just somebody you learn about yourself, and then from when, from there you go on somewhere else. Now the question, somebody who will take you all the way. Well, some teachings have something called all the way, final realization. Some teachings don't have anything like that. They say everybody goes as far as they can go, you see, and there is no end, really. What is your view about this question of there being a destination? Well, in the view and the teaching I, I use, the approach, I see it depends on the person, on the students. The students, you can say each student comes in with a certain aptitude, certain potential, and also certain destiny, certain vibration. They could hook up with a certain teaching, certain teacher, and the teaching or the ultimate of that teaching might be exactly what fits them. And that's fine. They could realize, be realizing that teaching. Some students are, no, that's not going to be what's satisfying with them. Some ultimate of other teaching will do it. Some uh, individuals will not be satisfied with that. They want to go be free to roam the spiritual universe because after enlightenment, there is another enlightenment. In the diamond approach, we provide both of those. We teach, I teach the various uh, stages of realization 
and one can go to realize like you know the the atman or the brahman according to vedanta or realize dharmakaya according to buddhism or you know suchness according to zen but they, we we also uh, provide teachings where a person can learn those but learn other ways of realization, other ways that enlightenment can be that are not encompassed by something like dharmakaya or non-dual uh, realization. And that will be what I call the way of freedom. So when you say that there are various stages that you teach, is that something that you can summarize for us, what those stages are? Yeah, and and put it this way, and um, in the diamond approach, one way I formalize it, I say I teach the teaching in what I call four, the four turnings of the teachings, similar to what, like some Buddhists have, about, they have what they call the third turnings of the wheel of the teaching. We have in the diamond approach something called the four turnings. The first one has to do with individual realization, individual enlightenment, knowing what you are, who you are, and be free in being that. The second stage, second turning, has to do with the, what's called non-dual enlightenment, so corresponds to non-dual enlightenment, which is experiencing selflessness and recognizing that one is not an individual self, but a vastness and infinity that is the nature of everything. And then I have the third turning, which is starting from the non-dual and opening up to other possibilities, learning that freedom does not depend on an ultimate. And then the fourth turning is the various ways, the various kind of enlightenment that can happen then, which are endless and different people will experience different things. Now, Hamid, there's so much about the diamond approach that I would like to talk with you about because it's, to be honest with you, one of the deepest and most nuanced and always surprising to me paths that I've ever heard described, meaning there's so much that you talk about that I've never heard anybody else articulate. And before we get into that, some of the really original, in my view, contributions of the Diamond Approach, I'd love our listeners to hear a little bit more about you and a little bit more about how you came into this body of work. I mean, I know that from our previous discussions that you came to the United States when you were 18 and that you went to Berkeley to study physics. Went to the university, right. Yeah, and then there was a turning point in your life, and that's what I'd be curious to know about, what that turning point was when you were a student at the University of Berkeley studying physics. Yeah, the turning point happened toward the end of my graduate work. I was studying physics, and I was in the, uh, Lawrence Rad Lab in Berkeley and working my Ph.D. thesis. And I realized I was losing interest. And, and so... Well, before that, I was very much into it. I was always a good student, learner. 
And so when I investigated it, I found out that I was really looking after something that I wasn't going to find there, that I was looking for the truth. I wanted to know what is the truth of reality. And I thought science, physics, and math, since I was teenagers, I thought that might give that give it to me. But then I realized it wasn't really, that's not the truth I was really after. Like I was recognizing that the truth I was after is not about uh, the physical universe. And also, looking around me, I happened a turning point, like it was an event happened. I was there in the cafeteria of the Rad, uh, Lawrence Rad Lab, you know, having lunch with all the professors, graduate students, and looked around me, and then all these sort of brilliant people around, and I had this vision that all these big heads popping around with nothing much else to them. And that's when I saw, I said, oh, that is not how how I wanted to turn out to be. That is not what I wanted to learn, just to be brilliant in my head, but the rest of my being not involved. That gave me the insight. And, uh, and that happened about a few years after I had, I uh, probably talked with you about out of uh, that experience that was out of body experience or I experienced myself as not the body. So that became a turning point and at that time I started, you know Yeah, let's talk about that little the out of body experience you had. That was a type of near death experience, would you say? Yeah, it was a near death experience. Uh, I was at the end of my undergraduate school. I had a traffic accident. And I don't know that I was near death or actually dead for a while, cause, but I was outside the body. I wasn't in my body, and I realized I wasn't in the body, and I was looking at it from above, but I recognized myself as a body of light, as a body of pure, brilliant light of different qualities and different intelligences. And... And from there, I could I saw I could go one way, or I could go to the body, to the physical, to the world, or I could go to another direction, which seemed totally free, totally peaceful, totally blissful. And out of that body of light, out of that uh, sort of... Um, as if a certain heart emerged out of it uh, that emanated love and joy that directed me directly to go back to the physical, to go to the world. Because there's something I love to do and I enjoy doing, although it would, have been, it would be more difficult. So it wasn't like a conscious choice. It's more like just a movement, a spontaneous movement that happened. You know, it's interesting, Hamid, because here, the diamond approach, you've downloaded, my word, but, you know, you've downloaded this revelatory teaching that has a lot of features that I've 
never seen anywhere else. And the fact that you had this very profound near-death experience, you know, it reminds me of other people I've interviewed and that we've published It Sounds True. And not all of our original authors have had near-death experiences, but a lot of them have, (laughs) actually. And, you know, of course, it's not one of those things one can uh, play with, like, oh, I think I'd like to have a near-death experience to help further my realization, because, you know, you could screw up in the process. I'm just making a bad joke here. But I'm curious to know more from you about what you think might have occurred in that type of experience that shifted the trajectory of your life and perhaps created the kind of access to this teaching pouring through you. So I think that near-death experience basically uh, brought to consciousness something I was pursuing without knowing consciously I was pursuing. You know, that I was interested in the truth, but I was seeing it not accurately. So that experience wasn't really an enlightenment. I wouldn't say that was the enlightenment experience. It's more a reorientation or an orientation that's pointing the way toward what is it really that my heart is after. And that began a process because uh, what I was experienced and uh, need that experience, I was not able to experience it in that fullness until several years later. It took a lot of practice, a lot of work to be able to experience that purity of uh, consciousness. See? And, uh, and with that came a lot of teaching. That's true. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you say it took a lot of practice, a lot of work, in those early days, what was the practice that you were doing? Well, I, I met many teachers. I, I worked with teachers. I did practice meditations and prayers. and cha- I mean, many things. I followed Tibetan Buddhists. I followed uh, Sufi teachers. I worked with psychologists and therapists. I, I met Hindu teachers. I went to, I mean, I did many things for several years. But then at some point, and also Gurdjieffian teachers, and, uh, and uh, I've done the therapy of different kinds. I basically wanted to open up myself. It made me, that experience made me see I needed to open myself up, open my consciousness and my mind in ways that I didn't know. Uh, before that, it could be open, and I was, and, and I was. Uh, I'm not saying I was consciously doing that. It's more like became a natural reorientation where my consciousness kept going, gravitating in a certain direction. Before, at some point, I became conscious. Oh, that's what I was doing, and part of that reorientation is recognizing that physics was not exactly where I belong. And then you said several years later, there was some type of experience that brought you back into this state of purity that you encountered in the near-death experience. Can you tell us more about that? Well, so I had many experiences when I was working, working with many teachers and traditions. However, the teaching that became the diamond approach became its own thread that developed at some point, Right. And it began with a discovery of what I call now presence. 
essential presence or spiritual presence, ontological presence, or the presence of through nature, or conscious, which is self-conscious, self-aware sense of being. It was a discovery. It happened at some point. I was meditating, or and this thing arose, and I didn't know what it was. And I recognized when I felt it, recognized it, felt, oh, this is really what I am. And I felt connected with all of humanity at, at that time. And I felt connected with all humanity. I felt this is life, the source of life, potential for everything. And it is a sense of realness, and a sense of uh, clarity and knowledge. And it felt to me at that time, although it was the beginning really of the path, that just that by itself was worth living my life. Like if I died at that time, I would have been satisfied. But turned out that was just the beginning. And mm-hmm. after that, details began to be revealed, details about what this presence is about, its qualities, its dimensions, its wisdom. And it's like that presence grew from where it woke up and started growing and unfolding and revealing what it is. And the presence is what we are, what we really are. Other people, other traditions, don't talk about presence. They talk about light or awareness or love. But I experienced it as presence. And you're making a distinction. I mean, you said this thing arose, and you're making a distinction when you're talking about presence from light or awareness. Tell me when you say other traditions don't talk about it, what's unique in terms of how you feel this thing called presence? Well, some teaching emphasizes love, some teaching emphasizes devotion, some teaching emphasizes awareness or emptiness. And all those I got to learn at some point, but I learned them through the presence. The presence is a way of experiencing consciousness and awareness. However, it has a sense of uh, recognizing I am recognizing that the, that what I am is real and true, authentic, unfabricated, and independent of anything in my mind or of my history. It is right now, this moment. So there is a here-ness and a now-ness to it and a sense of palpableness of almost like feeling your body palpably except I wasn't feeling my body. I was feeling uh, actual pure uh, consciousness or self-aware presence. People, when, when, they, when they experience presence, they will know it. But most people, when they hear the word presence, they don't exactly know it. They might mistake it to mean presence of mind, presence of awareness, I am attentive, I am feeling my body, all these are the effects of presence, not the presence. The presence is like the true nature, the, the, the spiritual nature itself, spirit itself, manifesting itself, appearing as what I am, recognizing I am the spirit. And the spirit is a palpable isness, a palpable truth. But that is the beginning experience of it, though. That's what I found out. But it is, for me, 
just being with it, being that, it grew and developed and unfolded and revealed the teaching and evolved on its own to show me that not only I am present, but this presence is love, this presence is peace, this presence is joy, it's clarity, it's emptiness, it's truth, and also, ultimately, it is the nature of everything, of the whole universe. Now, Hamid, one of the things about the diamond approach that I've found so interesting, and you know, I may not have a clear understanding of this, but you can help me here, is that often traditions will talk about how there's something, they may not use the word presence, but there's some way that we're boundlessly connected to everything, something, the ground of being, the oneness we all share. There's that. There's this field of oneness, boundless oneness. And then there's the ego. There's the part of me that is this constructed, fictional sense of who I am that's been fabricated based on my response to the environment and my need to... Okay, fine. But in the diamond approach, it seems like you introduce the idea that there's also something that's not the ego, not oneness, but we could say is like the true individual or something about the individual person. So can you help me understand that? What is a true individual? I mean, that's one thing that the presence revealed in time and or evolved into or manifests itself as as part of the teaching is that uh, reality is the spiritual world is a whole world just like when we think of the physical world we think of the earth and the planets and the galaxies and the you know and suns and stars and all of that and people and forces and it's very complex well the spiritual universe is like that too it's very complex it has many things in it at the same time however it has its basic ground right like the universe its basic ground is say time and space for instance or you know strings or elementary particles Everything is made out of that. The same thing with the spiritual universe. There is the basic ground, the true nature, but that manifests itself in many forms and many ways that are all pure and authentic, just the, the ground is pure and authentic. And there are many of those qualities, like love is one of them. Love, the feeling of love is not, it's not just simply presence. I could feel myself as just pure presence with no qualities, or I can feel this presence as sweet, as melty, as appreciative, as uh, effulgent and giving and generous and beautiful. That makes it, so the presence manifests itself as love. So it forms itself into that. Just as it forms itself into love or consciousness or awareness, it can form itself into a person, a human person of presence. And that is something I think is rare in many spiritual teachings. Uh, It will be difficult to find it in Eastern teachings. You'll find it more in Western teaching, and there are allusions to it, but they don't make it as explicit as we do, as I do it, which that's what I call the personal essence. 
or the pearl beyond price, which is how to be a human being, a person in the world, an individual in the world. But this person is really the same presence, the same purity, the same perfection that is awareness, that is truth, that is love, but as a person. It is a very uh, unusual and unexpected thing that most people don't expect. Many teachings will right away dismiss it as ego because they think you can only be personal of your ego. But there are teachings who know about it, and Diane Approach is one of them. How do we understand the difference between our individuality and our ego identity? How do we know what this true essential person is? Well, very simple. There is the individuality of ego. The ego is some kind of an individual entity. And the sense of real person feels like an individual, but I will call it more a person than an individual. And the difference is that the ego, when you experience the individuality of ego, first of all, you see it has patterns. They are fixed patterns to the way it thinks, behaves, plans, and the patterns are historical. They have history, they have emotion, they have belief, they have ideas. So the individuality of ego you will find out when you explore it that it is constructed through space, through, not space, through history, through our, uh, the experiences we went through in our history from childhood and before childhood. And throughout our life, we are pressures that affect our consciousness. And from that, they become constellated, a sense of being an, uh, an individual with a certain character. But that individual, certain character is bound by its history, by its impression. It cannot strike out and become and be something outside of those patterns. Now, the individuality of true nature, the real person, is not related to history that way. It doesn't have historical patterns. Uh, and also, the individuality of ego, when you explore it, you realize it involves images, beliefs, memories and emotions and reaction while the real person has no images or beliefs it is a spontaneous beingness in the now that responds personally in the now and responds with an intelligence that uses all the knowledge we've had from the past without that knowledge determining or patterning the individual. So that person has at its command the knowledge of history without the history patterning or determining or conditioning who one is. So the real person is a person being, a person of presence. This presence manifesting itself in a personal way that responds to other human beings as persons. So as, in a, as a result, it has the sense of person has a real personalness, capacity to contact other human beings, capacity for attunement and for empathy 
recognizing other human beings, the whole universe and their own, and listening and feeling the other, and not responding out of innate spontaneous intelligence that is not constrained by history, you know, by impressions or patterns from the past. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. I want to dig a little deeper into this, if that's okay, because okay. it's something that is... Oh, um, good, yeah. It's so important to me, and there really aren't very many people talking about it. So first of all... I oh, could, not many people talk about it. I agree. I could imagine somebody listening saying, come on, it's not possible to ever be free from your history, from you know the language that you've learned, the cultural context that you've grown up with. I mean, how is it possible for a person to be free of their history? Well... I mean, that that question is not just related to being a person of presence. It has to do with spiritual realization in general. All spiritual realization means to be free from your history. All teachings, not just me. If there is no freedom from history, there is no spiritual realization. There is no enlightenment. Enlightenment is, by definition, is that what you are, and what you do right now is informed by history, but not constrained by it. Okay. See? Okay, I'm, I'm with you. That is. If, that, if that's not there, there is no freedom. Yeah. One okay. hasn't yet evolved spiritually. Okay, I'm with you. And then taking this the next step, you talked about how the presence itself revealed to you what it was made of, how it was made of love, how it's made of clarity, these different qualities, and also personhood. But these different qualities like love, clarity, they're things we all share in, in some way. We could all right. tune. But when it comes to personhood, is I mean, my personhood is different from your personhood. So that sort of puts this discussion of personhood in a different category because each one of us has our own personhood. Yes? Yes. There is uniqueness to the personhood. However... Personhood is the same for everybody, the sense of personhood. You see, just like uh, love is for everybody, love is love. You can't just have, you know, everybody have their own love. However, people express it differently, right? Respond to it differently, but love is love. Same thing with personhood. Think of it as a quality like love or like peace. So it's universal. However... It expresses itself uniquely for each individual. So the sense of being personal, like I'm being personal with you right now, you're Tammy, you're a person, and I am as a person, as a human being, a person of being, talking to you as the person. I'm aware of my history, but I'm talking to you in the now, and what I'm saying is informed by my history. I cannot not be informed by my history, 
I wouldn't want not to be informed by my history. But my history doesn't tell me what and who I am. I'm with you. Now, you called this the pearl beyond price. Why is discovering our personhood the pearl beyond price? Well, there are many, actually, stories, spiritual stories from various traditions that use the word pearl beyond price. And usually the story goes, the one goes, leaves heaven or some kind of, you know, spiritual realm and goes into the world and lives in the world amongst the, the people of the world who are unaware of the spiritual realm to find some kind of precious gem that is usually guarded by a monster or a dragon or something. And you find it and you take it back with you. And that makes you become mature and you can reside in your spiritual station with a new maturity that wasn't possible to find in the spiritual realm that you started with. So, and... Usually, traditionally, it's been called the precious pearl, pearl beyond price, and uh, and it is a it's a precious it's precious because it's rare, precious because it is really what a human being can be or become. And I call it pearl because it is also when you experience it phenomenologically, it has a sense of roundedness and pearlescent luminosity that also reminiscent of a real pearl or a physical pearl. Now you said, Hamid, that yes, not many traditions talk about this discovery of personhood and the importance of personhood. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so rare? Well, you know, there are many traditions don't talk about it. There are traditions who talk about it implicitly. Like the Western tradition, they talk about it implicitly. They talk about, you know, like if you think of the Sufis, the Sufis, their their aim or their ultimate is the complete human being. Complete human being for them is a person. They, don't, they, they, they mean a person, but they don't say it. They say complete human being. Same thing in the Kabbalah. They talk about human being. They don't talk about becoming a boundless, infinite uh, spirit. They don't think that's the aim. Now, in the Eastern tradition, they think being the boundless, infinite spirit is it. So they don't focus on the sense of being a person as much. Now, to talk about it explicitly, the way I'm talking about it, is partly because of our times. Because our times in our Western culture, and the fact of the development of uh, how Western culture developed in such a way that personal freedom is important, human rights is important, and secularism and freedom of choice, all these things are really sort of qualities of the person, of the real person. So the West developed it, but developed it not on the spiritual level, developed it to a certain degree. And the real person for me is the next step, how to fill out that form with something real, something substantial, something with the real flesh and bones of the, 
of the real person. So the West in general emphasized the sense of person, but because of the, the, the way things developed, it became more of the ego person, you see. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm saying that the ego person is just a stage. We need to go to the, another stage of how the person becomes a real person. In the East, there are some teachings referred to the, to the precious pearl, like some of the Taoist teaching, some of their meditation. I don't know if you read those, where they talk about the, you know, the heavenly embryo and the belly that develops. And they say, and it is in the shape of a luminous pearl. You find it in some of the iconography, of, of, of Tibetan iconography, for instance. You find pearls all over the place. They don't, it's there, it's just not a, a big, important, central thing. And I think some of them actually embody it. They just don't conceptualize it. Mm-hmm. But because of our culture has become psychological, that's the other thing I want to say. Because our culture has, for a hundred years or so, psychology became some such such an important part of the culture. The culture, the culture is actually more psychological than spiritual or philosophical. Because of psychology of it, it makes it possible to learn about the person directly because the real person, as the story says, you find it in the world. You don't stay in heaven to get it. You go, come into the world, come into earth, and immerse yourself in the everyday life. And our psychology helps us to deal with everyday life in a way that we can handle it in a good way, you see, in a way that is optimal. And which I think made, for me, in my work, it became very handy for actually. Because the person is in some sense the metabolism of our personal history. Like all of our personal history, all what we come, we gone through, by understanding it, going through it, feeling it, experiencing it, making it conscious, not just witnessing it, and really immersing oneself in understanding, it become metabolized, it become digested. And the final outcome of that metabolism is the personal essence, the real person. I'm glad you brought up the last hundred years of psychology because one of the things I wanted to make sure that we underscored in our conversation is how the diamond approach actually doesn't divide our journey into the psychological aspect of our journey and the spiritual aspect of our journey. You don't see that division. For you, there's one unfolding process. And I wonder if you can talk some about that. Yeah. So you see, the division between psychology and spirituality, first of all, is a recent development. Maybe it happened in the last 100, 200 years or so. Before that, psychology, philosophy, and and spirituality were, were all the same thing. They got divided by the time of the Renaissance, I mean the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the specialization of the sciences, one of them became psychology. Before that, it was part of spiritual work. Any spiritual tradition had its psychology, you know. Like the Sufis has the knowledge of the nafs, of the soul. You know, the, the Kabbalah has the knowledge of the, of the nefesh, of the, 
uh, neshama, which is sort of the further stage of the soul. Same thing with Christianity. And uh, Buddhism had its psychology, you know, and so is the yogic psychologies of the of the Indian tradition. So, however, in our modern times, we have our own psychology. And since this teaching, the Dharma approach developed in this time, it uses the psychology of this time. So I'm not saying other teachings don't have psychologies. They do. There's no spiritual teaching without a psychology. But they distance, the traditional teaching distance themselves from modern psychology because it is different from the psychology they use. It seems in the diamond approach, you see a lot of value in incorporating the language of modern psychology and that you've actually created a map of this process of realization that we're talking about where they're inseparable. And that's what I'd be curious for you to articulate, what that inseparability yeah, that's is. That yeah. brings up the question of uh, our individual consciousness, what the Buddhist Tibetans will call the the subtle uh, stream of consciousness, or uh, Christian will call the soul. It's the same thing, which is that each one of us, we have our own individual consciousness. We're not just a body, but also a consciousness. And the consciousness is individual. And it's not individual just because it's the body. It's a really individual consciousness. This individual consciousness has many capacities in it and many uh, dimensions and facets to it. It can think, uh, it can feel, it can sense, it can have spiritual experience, it can be clear or it can be muddled, it can be empty or full, it can expand to become the whole universe or can contract to become just a physical body. And this consciousness, you know, this individual consciousness, has all of all of it in it. Has the mind with its thoughts and psychology, has in the heart with its emotions and 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 the spiritual heart, has in the spirit with its qualities of radiance and presence. They're all dimensions of the same consciousness. So when we recognize ourselves that as this consciousness, these things are not really uh, separate. They're all dimensions of the same organism, the same being of consciousness. So it is that recognition that I had. In fact, my original recognition, I mentioned to you, when I felt I was connected with all of humanity, I experienced presence, I was experiencing the individual consciousness that was alive and dynamic, that was animating the body, but, but its core is spiritual, that was connected with all other human individual consciousness. And that consciousness has all of it in it. Because of the beginning experience, I began with a consciousness which was not just pure spirit, because spirit is just a dimension of this consciousness but has in it the thinking apparatus, has in it the feeling of the emotion, I saw that they were all dimensions of the same being, the same consciousness. So 
So in my mind, it never really got separated because of my experience, plus the fact that I had teachers who also influenced me who were uh, consciously, intentionally trying to unify psychology and, sp- and meditation or psychology and spiritual work. And the Diamond Approach, the way it developed, it wasn't an attempt at unifying. The teaching ar- developed, arose with the two facets unified organically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Hamid, we've identified two, I think, of the real highlights that are unique about the diamond approach, this perfect unification of psychology and spirituality, as you said, just of two facets, and we've talked about the personal essence or personhood. I'm wondering if you were to give one or two other elements of the diamond approach special attention, what you think they might be. Other thing about diamond approach is the methodology, the main method I use. I learned meditations of various kinds. I learned prayers. I learned chanting. I learned many kinds of spiritual techniques. But the method that the realization diamond approach developed more than anything else is what I call inquiry. Now, when people hear inquiry, they will think they know about it because they hear the word before. However, inquiry here in Diamond Approach is a very specific kind. It is imbued, guided by, and pervaded by the presence with its qualities. So it's inquiry in our everyday experience. But inquiry, because it is infused and guided by spiritual presence, it tends to understand whatever experience we have in its relationship to our spiritual nature. And that is, uh, I think, the new method. I don't know if anybody else does it this way. And it is very powerful, amazing method. How do I inquire in such a way that I make sure that presence is there guiding the inquiry process? How do I do that? At the beginning, you wouldn't. At the beginning, you will inquire, and that's one important reason why it's good to have a teacher or to have some kind of understanding of presence. Where, but the main thing, that there are principles of this inquiry that make it recognized as guided by presence. One of the principles is that the motivation for the inquiry is, is selfless love. Is really, and the love is loving the truth, wanting to know what is the truth. What is the truth about me? What is the truth about the world, the universe? What is the truth about helping people? What is it? What's here and what's it for? That, so it is a love to know the truth. It's sort of the scientific kind of uh, impulse, but directed toward the reality, toward inner experience, not toward physical object. And so it's loving it, to know the truth and to, to uh, the truth can be our experience, whatever I'm experiencing, whether I'm feeling sad or happy, whether I'm experiencing myself depressed or enlightened or whatever it is, not to have a judgment about it. So that other principle is what I call, it is open inquiry. I mean, 
it is open to anything that arises that is there. And the other principle is open-ended. Mean, it means I'm not inquiring to arrive at any particular aim or goal. I'm just inquiring to find the truth. I don't care what the truth is going to be. I just want to find out what it is. And with it, of course, there, there has to be curiosity, an intense curiosity, and has to be courage and boldness to know ourselves, to know our terrors and fears and pains, and and also the beautiful things about us and the richness. Because the richness and the beauty and the love are sometimes more scary than the ugliness and the fear for some people. So these are characteristic qualities about the inquiry. I've written a whole book about it. You probably know about it. I call it Space Crews of Inquiry. Because nobody really written something about that kind of inquiry. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the inquiry, because it is open, open-ended, reflects the path itself. That the, the path itself is open and open-ended. Remember when we talked at the beginning, when you said, t- uh, t- take us to the end? Yeah. And I said, in, uh, open-ended means there's no end. The end is that there's no end. Yeah. See, like you keep learning. Like, what does a, an enlightened person do? What do they experience? Do they just experience the enlightenment? Same thing over and over and over again? Some people believe that's the case. The reality is an enlightened person is busy discovering things about reality and the universe. New things they haven't seen. So the inquiry continues, even when somebody is liberated, somebody realizes whether you call it awareness or emptiness or atman or whatever. Those are needed because they give us the freedom, but they are stepping stones from which we can jump into the unknown because we're not afraid now. We know we are not the self that we've taken ourselves to be. We are free. And then we can explore. So both the path and the method reflect each other. The path doesn't have an end, and the method does not try to reach an end. Mm-hmm. So it's open-ended. As a result, it is free to reveal whatever there is, whatever possible for that particular human being. And for me, different human beings might discover different things. And Part of that is the recognition, the, the deep insight that the spirituality, uh, spirit has no end in terms of knowledge. You, we can never know it completely. Not because we cannot know it, but because regardless how much we know it, there is more to know. The more we realize it, the more that we, we can realize and that's the part I didn't write much about in my books for people who read my books because the books that I have written are about the first half of the diamond approach. The second half I haven't written anything about yet. There will be books coming out of it about it. But which is which? But it is the perspective freedom to start from the non-dual or to start from the boundless and the infinite as an openness to exploration of reality that we can never imagine. 
that even the non-dual and the boundless and infinite turns out to be just particular ways of experiencing reality, and reality has a lot more up its sleeve. Now, Hamida, I'm curious what you might say to this, because, you know, ever since I've been introduced to your work, I've talked to different people about how meaningful your teachings have been to me. And sometimes I'll hear people say, God, you know, you have to have like three PhDs to understand what Hamid's talking about, Tammy. It's so, and they'll often use this word, it's so intellectual. You have to be really intellectually gifted to follow what he's talking about. And I often respond and say, well, you know, I'm not really sure that's true. That's not my experience. My experience is that he's talking about something that I can actually track inside my own being if I listen carefully. And then sometimes you go further off into the deep end than I can track. And I make a note of that. And I'm curious about it. But what I'd love to know is how do you respond to, I guess, what you could call a critique or at least a response that people often have, which is, wow, you have this is so heady. It's so intellectual to get involved with the diamond approach and understanding what Hamid's talking about. Well, uh, first of all, I, I have that experience too in our school. When students come to our school for first couple of years or so, many of them face, think it's intellectual when the teachers are teaching. They think it's intellectual, it's, it's not real, and you know maybe somebody's ideas. It takes them a while of doing the practices, the inquiry and the meditation, before they realize, oh, I saw I, it, it was intellectual because that was the best way I can approach it intellectually because I couldn't feel, can resonate to the truth as is in it. So that is true about any teaching that has details in it. You know, uh, I mean, if you, you're familiar with Buddhist teachings, how many t- books there are, details, how many t- tantras and sutras and commentaries, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Those people who are saying have that critique about the diamond approach, they should approach the Buddhist tradition, see what they think about it. Mm-hmm. It will sound much more abstract. The same thing about the Kabbalah. If you try to read the Kabbalah, most people they don't know what they're reading. It's all sound like symbols and words and so that's you know, it, it's a critique that is uh, the person who doesn't have the spiritual experience is bound to have. It's normal, it's natural to have that. It is better for a person who's approaching spiritual teaching when they feel that way to have some humility and and just take the position that, well, maybe there's something here I just cannot feel, cannot recognize. I can recognize it intellectually, but maybe there's something more to it, to be open to that possibility. Now, there are teachings that are sort of simple, don't have much details and all that. Some teachers do that. They just have one thing they teach, and it is simple. And for some people, that is the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, that's all they need, something very simple, straightforward. You just do this chanting. You do just this meditation. And we just want to get to the non-dual and nothing else, no details. And, you know, some people do that, and that works for some people. In the diamond approach, you know, I understand that, I appreciate it. 
and I see that some people, that's what's probably the right thing for them. But for many people, they have a rich consciousness, and uh, they are curious and want to know, not just they want to know spirit, they want to know, know the spiritual universe and how it relates to life and its details. And any really spiritual tradition that has that is mature will have that detail, that complexity. So it's I don't I think this critique can be applied to many teachings. I've heard it in my own school and it is true. But what you said also is good. I'm glad that when you read the book you do feel something because you do have some experience. You have your own experience of being or through nature. When our consciousness is open and you read something for somebody might be words for you, it's meaningful because you resonate. It brings up something in you. That is one way I myself have learned actually from other traditions is by reading the text, the books. For most people, they're complex, they're thick, they're uh, uh, difficult, impenetrable, but for me, by studying them, get into them, I finally get into the consciousness of the writer Mm -hmm. and feel what they are trying to say. And that, I think, one way to read spiritual teaching in general is not to just take the word, to take the words are the outer conveyor of a a nutrient that the words can carry, but the words are not the nutrient. Mm -hmm. Now, one just last thing I want to briefly talk to you about is that along with the Episcopalian priest, Cynthia Bourgeau, you're going to be having a one-day dialogue that I will have the honor of hosting on the power of sacred relationship this is on October 27th in San Rafael, California, and the dialogue's called Conscious Love, The Power of Revelation. And I'm wondering if you can just briefly talk a little bit about why this topic, the topic of sacred relationship, is of interest to you. Well, good. First of all, because in the teaching I teach, in Diamond Approach, uh, relationship is important for two reasons. It is important because it is a place where we can actually express and embody what we have learned spiritually. This is the most immediate place we have. The other thing is that the the relationship itself can become a crucible for the work. We have processes that uses not not only solo practices, but dyadic practices, where something happens between two people. I have what I call dialectic inquiry, where the two people are like two forces melding and combining, and with the feedback loop that generates a field that is much stronger than one person. And just like there are group uh, inquiries, something similar happens like in group meditation, where there's a field that's generated. Now, the thing why I'm interested in this dialogue with Cynthia, because she has that interest herself. She, has a rela- she had a relationship with a person who was, what was very uh, instrumental in her own development and her own uh, learning. 
which she continues to have, and she has it with somebody who had died. And for me, that is interesting because I think that is possible. I have experience of that. And also, she talks about relationship in ways I didn't see other people describe, but I'm familiar with in our teaching, which is that people, what people know about relationship is really just the beginning, just like as what we know about ourselves is just the beginning. And through awakening and realization enlightenment, we find that we are a lot more. The same thing about relationships. What people know about relationships is just the beginning. And we can find out that relationship is a lot more to it than what we see. It is not just sharing a feeling or sharing space together or sharing opinions. We can share spiritual realities. We can have, uh, there are kind of intimacies, kind of connectedness, kind of communication that does not become available until we have some spiritual development. So when there's spiritual development happened between two people, some the, what happens between them is something not known in ordinary relationship. And I wanted to talk about that because I think it's very important. Not many teachings talk about that, discuss that, what happens actually. You, what you hear about is what happens between a teacher and students. You don't hear about what actually happens between two realized individuals. Mm. How about if those two realized individuals are good friends or they have an intimate relationship? What happens between them? There isn't. You don't see much in the literature. You don't hear it much. It's not part of the teaching. In the Dying Approach, we actually have a teaching about that. And I thought it would be an interesting dialogue to have with Cynthia because she is interested in that topic. She's written books about it, like her book about Mary Magdalene, her, his, her relationship with Jesus. And also the Diamond Approach developed also within a context of relationship. I didn't develop the Diamond Approach by myself. I'm the main person. But I developed it in dialogue with a friend, or a colleague, who we have such unusual relationship that has become not only a relationship uh, developed and grown in ways unexpected, but the relationship itself, the friendship itself, the intimacy itself became a big part of the source of the teaching. Mm, beautiful. Which is something most people don't know, you know, that that can happen. See. Beautiful. On October 27th in San Rafael, California, I think it's going to be very interesting and very novel for many people. Yeah, I'm totally looking forward to it. Yeah, I know. I'm excited about it, too. And that's October 27th, 2012, in San Rafael, California, Cynthia Bourgeau. The whole afternoon, right? Whole afternoon, Cynthia Bourgeau and A.H. Almas in conversation about conscious love, the power of revelation. And A.H. Almas, in addition to writing many books, has published audio programs with Sounds True, including a six-session audio course on the Diamond Approach, as well as a conversation that was recorded between A.H. Almas and Adyashanti called Realization Unfolds, 
There are also many audios published by the Ridwan Foundation, A.H. Almas's organization, including a series on sacred psychology and an audio of Almas's most recent new book, The Unfolding Now, all available at SoundsTrue.com. Hamid, thank you so much. Every time I talk to you, you take me further out into the ocean. I really think you're such a unique, deep diver, and I'm so grateful to have this chance to talk with you, really. It's good talking to you. It's interesting you talk about ocean because I've been in the ocean every morning here. I snorkel instead of dive, but there are a lot of divers around. <laughs> so we'll dive in the ocean, and maybe when we uh, have that dialogue, Cynthia Joe will dive into the ocean of the heart. The ocean of love. Let's do it. Ocean of love, exactly. Let's do it. Thank you so much, Hamid. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.